Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 509. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink in a brand new space. We moved, Ryan. Hooray! I live in a new place. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. If anything technically sounds weird or different, it's that reason. So now that you own a house, one of the fun things is constantly discovering new things you didn't know existed. Like last week, I was like, I thought this window didn't have a screen on it. And I opened it up. There was a screen so I could open a window. It was great. Those little things that you just don't realize when, you know, you move in and you're like unpacking and doing all this stuff. And then you finally start to breathe and explore your own space. Yeah, no, that is definitely exciting. I'm also really enjoying discovering my old crap. Like these Marvel Universe official handbooks Mm -hmm. from 1986 or so. Yeah, 1986 or so. Oh, I found so much crap that I forgot that I have. I can smell those comics, even though we're we're 20 miles apart. I know we still have a storage unit that we have to empty out. And I I don't even know what's going to be in there. All my sins of the past, all my my skeleton. But we're not here to talk about my skeletons. We're here to talk about what's happening this week in Marvel, whether it's games, comics, movies, TV, or, you know, just whatever we feel like talking about because it's our show and not yours to quote two great drag queens. (laughs) With that in mind, it's a big week. We have a lot to get to, a lot that we're excited about. Marvel Studios Loki season one is now fully available on Disney Plus and Marvel Studios Black Widow. It's in theaters and on Disney Plus with Premier Access for an additional fee. So you might be thinking it's a quiet time for the MCU. You would be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many updates this week. There was a new poster for Marvel Studios' What If featuring my namesake, The Watcher. (laughs) And just a quick reminder that Marvel Studios' What If debuts in just a few short weeks on August 11th on Disney Plus. Yes, this is your official notice that the summer is more than half over. You're welcome. I'm so glad for the summer to GTFO. I need some cooler (laughs) weather. But uh, yeah, we still have more MCU stuff this week because we got a new spot for Marvel Studios Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. You can watch that on Marvel.com and all the Marvel channels. Of course, the film hits theater September 3rd, 2021. And that is not all. We've got more because we have an official image for Marvel Studios Hawkeye and a launch date for the original series on Disney+. Plus. And that launch date is November 24th. It's going to be great. I'm very excited for it. And we're not done with Marvel Studios just yet because we have a very special surprise guest later on in the show from Marvel Studios Black Widow. So stay tuned for that. Also, a wild thing happened. We had Comic-Con at Home 2021 this past week. And Ryan, I know you got to do a panel. What was your panel like? Yeah, it was the Marvel Comics X-Men panel. On the panel were Vita Ayala, Jerry Duggan, Benjamin Percy, Leah Williams, and Jordan D. White, the ex-office writers and editor. We talked about Reign of X. We talked about Inferno. We talked about what's coming next. We gave some spoilers. We showed some art. The X-Books are are a ding-dang delight, and I was glad to be a Mm -hmm. part of that panel. That's super awesome. The X-Books are awesome. There was also a panel for Marvel Universe of Superheroes, that awesome museum exhibition, and this panel was about the Fantastic Four and beyond. Professor Ben Saunders, who is a chief curator on that exhibit and is a crazy collector, just really knows a ton about 
comics and Marvel comics in particular. And of course, we had our own executive editor, Tom Brevoort, who is a human book, uh, is a human encyclopedia, <laughs> a man of many knowledges. And so they talked about this summer's 60th anniversary for Fantastic Four number one which is a huge milestone. Both of those panels are really, really awesome. You guys should go check them out on the Marvel YouTube channel and marvel.com. Lorraine, you remember way back in the before times when we traveled a lot and we went Mm -hmm. to Oh yeah, we went there. Yeah, the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibition when it was in Seattle, Washington. If you look at Marvel's YouTube channel, you can watch videos. It's an incredible exhibition. There's a book for it and plenty more. So check out that panel and then you can dig even further to see more. Also, during Comic-Con at home, we had the Eisner Awards, and we had two winners for Best New Series, Black Widow by Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, and Jordi Belair won, which is well-deserved. It is- Always. My God, that book is incredible. If you are not (laughs) reading it, get up on it. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And also, Best Cover Artist, Peach Momoko, who we all know has been crushing the game on covers lately- Congratulations, a well-deserved Eisner to her as well. Yeah, her Marvel variants are stunning. She's been doing- Amazing. Of late, there are these just like torso or upper body and face variants that are just, they're incredible. They're incredible. She's such an amazing artist. She's one of our Marvel Stormbreakers, and she gets a well-deserved Eisner Award. But we got more comics goodness. Eternals Celestia number one was announced. It's coming this October where the Eternals are going to face off against the Avengers of 1 million BCE. It's going to have Kieran Gillen writing it as well as Kaizama. So an awesome new team, an awesome new chapter for the Eternals. Can't wait to check it out in October. The Eternals book that Kieran is writing right now is so good. Yeah. And art by Isad Rabish. And then... I freaking love Kai. They do some really amazing stuff, especially with mech and bots. So I'm really excited to see Kai mm. work on this Avengers team, which has, you know, a woolly mammoth and all kinds of wild stuff in it. It's going to be incredible. Very excited for this book in October. And there is also another book announced. Yes. Luke Cage City of Fire is a three-issue limited series starting in October, written by Hochi Anderson with art by Farid Karami. This one's going to be cool. These might be new names to Marvel Comics readers, but there's some really cool work behind them. I know Hochi has worked on King, a comics biography of Martin Luther King Jr. He's worked on Screen Queens. So there's some really cool stuff going on there. Get excited. Also, it's freaking Luke Cage. How are you not like super yeah. pumped for anything new? With Cage. Yeah, 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 yeah. So also coming up, we have some prose novels, which are very cool. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I want to give a shout out to our own Judy Stevens yeah. from the Women of Marvel podcast, as well as writer Margaret Stoll, who has been on many a show with us, who we've hung out with many a times. I did my first book tour with Margaret Stoll. And they have been working on a book called Super Visible, The Story of the Women of Marvel. This is a really cool book. I was actually interviewed for this book as well as 119 other women and non-binary Marvel creators, writers, actors, and more. There's an incredible list of people that are going to be featured in this book, which is going to be coming in March of 2022. And it's part of a new partnership between Marvel and Gallery Books. But I am so excited for Judy. This is her maiden voyage into being an author. So please pre-order your book, support them. It means a lot to me that she's getting to have this opportunity. It's it's really, really wonderful. And 
these are some people definitely to check out and support. Plus, the book is just going to be awesome. I'm very excited for it. All right, let's see what else. We have a prose novel with the Rebels of Vanaheim that was announced last week. It'll be available December 7th, and it's the next prose novel in our Legends of Asgard line. So we have a couple of other books. This one stars Heimdall. And it's written by fantasy writer Richard Lee Byers. And so it's really about Heimdall returning to battle the undead and sort of figure out where he stands in everything. It's going to be a big, fun fantasy adventure. And it's kind of like the sequel to last year's The Head of Mimir, which is great. It's rad. Yeah. And there are also some awesome new books coming for middle grade readers with the Black Panther Legends miniseries written by Tochi Onyabuchi and illustrated by Setor Fiajabe. It's going to be a series that kicks off for all ages with a new line of stories for young readers and, you know, old school fans. Definitely look out for Black Panther Legends number one on comic shelves in October. And I think that fits in really well with the conversations we've been having lately where some fans have been asking how do you get younger readers into things? And we've been talking about different ways. We're, mm-hmm. you know, it even ties into our conversation later in the episode. So this is going to be great. If you have younger readers and you want to get them excited about Marvel superheroes, I think this is going to be wonderful. Let's shift gears a little bit to Marvel games because there was a whole bunch of stuff with Marvel Future Revolution. I was able to host a Marvel Live episode this week where we got a whole bunch of stuff. We looked at character customization. I made a purple version of Captain America and a red version of Captain America with the tightest pants I could find. It was very exciting. We got through some open world traversal. We looked at a bunch of the co-op multiplayer gameplay things. I showed off two versions of Agent M in the game, which is pretty cool. Living your NPC truth. Not only just being an NPC in the game, but like owning a store and making people pay for things that they need to uh, survive, which is very much my world. Check all that out (laughs) on Marvel.com, on our Twitch channel, on YouTube, everywhere we post videos. And the big news for this week on Marvel Future Revolution was the launch date. It is coming in less than a month. August 25th. So you can pre-register now at marvelfuturerevolution.com. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of stuff going with Marvel games this week. Marvel Contest of Champions has America Chavez joining the game. Today, if you're listening to this on Thursday, we're already in-game if you're listening to it after Thursday. And also, Marvel's Avengers is having an all-access weekend. It's available to download and try at no cost from the 29th through August 1st. So if you're listening to this, get on it, hurry up, get to it, because it's this weekend. Yeah, Lorraine, you know, it's going to be on different platforms. On PlayStation, it's available through 9 a.m. on August 2nd on Steam and Stadia. Same thing. Y'all can play it. I know that we have a lot of Xbox One and Xbox Series X and S players. So I know the Marvel's Avengers team is working on all access opportunities for those platforms in the coming months. Stay tuned for that. But if you have a PlayStation, you want to get on the game, you haven't tried it out yet, it is free to play for the next couple of days. And when you download this trial, you'll get access to all the content that they've put out so far for Marvel's Avengers. That includes the game's single player reassemble campaign where you're following Kamala Khan and and a number of other players through A-Day and the tragedy and then reforming the Avengers. There's the Operation Taking Aim post-launch playable stuff, which included Kate Bishop, where she was trying to find Clint Barton. It also includes Operation Future Imperfect, where you have Hawkeye, Clint Barton as the playable hero, as well as the new content drops, the Family Reunion Omega Level Threat, which has 
all kinds of wild stuff. If you are just joining, they might be a little tough for you to play, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And when you play this weekend, if you decide to buy the game afterwards, all your stats and everything that you've done in the game will carry over. And you want to do that because the biggest content drop yet is coming in August. That's the War for Wakanda expansion, which is tremendous. And the cast for War for Wakanda is going to be incredible. The one name I really, really want to highlight is Christopher Judge, who will be voicing T'Challa in the expansion. And if you don't know his work, he is Kratos from God of War 2018. He's an incredible performer, incredible voice presence. And him as T'Challa is going to be, I think, just stunning and really something special that Marvel's Avengers is going to be really benefiting from. And also, this is the time to do it. If you already have the game, I think there's four times experience when you play during this weekend. So I'm going to try to hop in and level up some of my characters again. I'm the real Agent M on PlayStation. I'm going to try. Having a toddler makes it a little difficult to play video games, but I shall try. I, I know one of our listeners, CJ Awesome, always wants to chat when I hop on PlayStation, but usually it's like I have 20 minutes to play a game. I'm sorry if I don't chat. It's a very, very real thing, but go check out all of the games. Play all the games. Also, Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord, the final episode is out this week, so definitely you can go and listen to the whole thing. Just plug in, clean your house. That's what I would do anyways. I love listening to podcasts <laughs> while I like clean or run errands or, or do things. Chapter 10, Dawn and Doom is now available on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a clip for you to check out right now. My name is Cora. I am a Rigelian recorder. And this will be the final edition of Deer on a Spear. Brandon Best is officially out of a job, and the person who will be taking his place is Doomwood's own Emma Frost. Hello there, darlings. In that clip, you heard the voices of Nadine Malouf as Cora and Vanessa Williams as Emma Frost. And of course, the series stars many other incredible actors such as Timothy Busfield as Star-Lord, Chris Elliott as Rocket, and more. You can listen to Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, finally... Our pals at Hasbro had a fan first Wednesday live stream this week revealing a bunch of new Marvel Legends. Ryan, what were your favorites? We're getting our first look at some of the What If product that's coming out. Yeah, I know yeah, we saw yeah, some yeah. other stuff from different companies before, but I'm a big Marvel Legends guy. I'm very excited for those. Binary, looking incredible. Vulture, Tigra. I know that there's more that the team is working on. I, I talked to pals over there, especially shout out to Dan. They're doing great work. There's some big stuff ahead kind of all the time forever. <laughs> In DD. Also a reminder, Marvel Legends Galactus is still taking supporters via HasLab. Go to HasbroPulse.com and back it. If you want more info about the Marvel Legends Galactus and everything, you can check out Marvel's pull list this week because we have on Dwight Stahl, who is one of the amazing product people from Hasbro. He basically helped design the big Galactus. So he comes on to talk about the trial of Galactus issues from Fantastic Four, written and drawn by John Byrne, that were a big inspiration for a lot of that. And that was a really great conversation and some great comics this week. Issue 12 of Cable, issue 5 of Beta Ray Bill, which may be my favorite comic series that we put out this year. I don't know, maybe. And then the first issue of Amazing Fantasy. Those were our picks. It was a good week for comic books. 
Yeah, we heart comic book. All right, it is time for our interview this week. It is with Patrick Stump, the singer and songwriter of the band Fallout Boy, but just an incredible songwriter of so many things. He is on the show this week to talk about writing the theme song and the music for the brand new show, Spidey and His Amazing Friends. It was a lot of fun. It's not often I get to talk about Los Crudos on a Marvel show, but here we are to talk about Spidey and His Amazing Friends. What is your Marvel origin story? How did you first get introduced to Marvel? Was it a cartoon? Was it a comic book? What was it for you that first like said, that's a, those superheroes? So I actually don't fully remember because it was early enough. So I must have been into comic books, you know, really early on. Because I remember at like, you know, convenience stores, they used to have that rack in the corner, that like spinning rack. And so I remember that an uncle of mine would buy me comic books if I asked, you know, if I went with him. But I, I do remember him when he moved out of my grandparents' house, I inherited his stack of She-Hulk. It was like the John Byrne era She-Hulk stuff. Yeah. And it was so much. And I remember being excited because it was Howard the Duck was in it a bunch. And it was like that run, you know. So that was kind of my, my entry point. But I, I have this specific memory of my uncle. I kind of casually knew Wolverine because I thought Wolverine was cool because he's cool. He's obviously cool. And um, we were at the convenience store. And they didn't have a Wolverine comic. And I was like, oh, you know, I can't find a Wolverine comics. And he's like, well, they have X-Men. And I'm like, what's X-Men? And he's like, well, he's in the X-Men. He's one of the X-Men. So got this X-Men comic. And that was everything that like changed my whole little world because that was after that, I was just obsessed, you know, and it's such a deep world and it just keeps going and there's X-Factor. And then, you know, that was not long before X-Force and all that stuff. So it was just like, there was too much X-Men, you know, but it, never too much, but you know. Yeah, I'm of like the same general time frame. I, mm -hmm. It's so cool to hear that you got into like you got those She-Hulk so early because yeah. that's such a weird book for a kid to read. And it's it so really perfect because <laughs> it's like breaking the fourth wall. And so if that like sets a parameter for what you think comics are, comics can really be anything after that. It's funny you mentioned that because I do feel like in a lot of ways it really eased me into all of it because, you know, it's not long before She-Hulk is in space, is an Avenger. She was in the Fantastic Four for a minute. Like, it's kind of like your primer for all of it. So no matter how weird any of the Marvel Universe gets, like, you were grounded there. So it was it was a great starting point. <laughs> so when, once you get, you're like looking for your Wolverines and stuff, does Wolverine, and you start expanding into more characters, is, is it stick around? Is Wolverine, like, stay your favorite Marvel character? Is there one that's sort of been your favorite across time so wolverine was definitely one of my long-lasting favorites i mean he's short he's kind of he's not like a you know he's not supposed to be handsome hugh jackman huh <laughs> um and you know he's from the frozen north i'm from chicago which is i'm not canadian but i sympathize with the kind of canadian weather you know so i always liked wolverine and you know he was my first guy as a you know my first superhero really that i really latched on to but then from there i mean yeah, I got really into Spider-Man. I think the thing about Spider-Man that was so crazy was he had this rogues gallery, right? That's, you know, it's one of the best rogues galleries in comics. But then he never had the like pathos of a lot of the other solo superheroes with the rogues gallery. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to name the other guy that we're probably all thinking of from the other company. But, you know, Spidey had the same universe, even had a similar kind of backstory where he's an orphan and whatever. But he couldn't help not being gee whiz about everything and being like really sarcastic about it. So 
it was kind of like the precursor to like Deadpool or something, which, you know, like took it over the top. But early on, you know, like those early Spidey comics, he can't help but like mock the situation because there's just this element of him, which is like, he's still this kid who's like, oh man, you're a lizard. This is crazy, you know? And um, I just love that. I just love that that he, you know, gets plopped into this world where, you know, you've got all of these, and especially those early comics too, the early 60s stuff, he's fighting aliens and like weird gangsters and stuff. It doesn't really, it's all over the place. And he's still kind of going through it like, wow, this is weird, you know? (laughs) I think part of it is like, the coping mechanism, that part of it is so relatable. Like there's so much that's relatable about Spider-Man and Peter Parker, but that aspect of like, I have to make these jokes and try to like, I have to make light of the situation because I am freaking out every second. That's exactly the thing I always thought was so realistic about Spidey. More than a lot of the, the golden age superheroes, Spidey was the most realistic in the way that he reacted to stuff. Cause it's weird. You know, like you can't have a guy dressed as a rhino running around, you know, and and the vulture and whatever, and not have it be like, yeah, that's real strange, you know? <laughs> it's nice that he acknowledges that. But then who else did I really love? I always liked Moon Knight. I mean, he was so intense with his, and you never knew where he was coming from, what his motivation was, if he really was this superhero, if he was just responding to delusions. You know, he has the, the multiple personalities. I really love the early stuff where he's... um the stuff he did with um, Werewolf by Night, right away introducing him with the supernatural stuff and having him deal with that. And he has this totally matter of fact way of dealing with it that, you know, he's just like, yeah, you know, I just I've gotten a fight with a werewolf. And he just never he never really takes it seriously. It was so cool. And then he goes off and he pretends to be this uh, taxi driver and he pretends to be, you know, you really don't know who he is. It's not like You know, there's that old idea about, you know, well, the secret identity is the real mask or whatever. But with him, I don't know who he is. And that's still going. And I love that. Yeah. I think in that first issue, too, he's like, Frenchie, pick me up. And then Frenchie picks him up in like the moon copter. Like, it's just so you're just like, all right, this guy's got (laughs) a lot going on. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. And I love that they kind of explain it, but they don't. And it makes it even more exciting. I really love the earlier eras of a lot of them, like Wolverine, because you know, it's neat that they gave him a backstory, but I loved not knowing his backstory. I love when he, when all he knew was he was Logan and he knew he was experimented on, but that was it. I loved that because it left so much, you know, of him just being like, I don't know, you know, it was, it was great. I like where they went with it, but I kind of missed that about that. I love not knowing, you know? Yeah. Dude's like 200 and some odd years old. I think they're still figuring out ways to build that mystery about him. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned Spidey. So what was your reaction to folks coming to you and saying like, hey, there's this cartoon we're doing, Spidey and his amazing friends. What was that conversation like? What was your reaction to starting to join the team for the show? Well, the thing that's really funny, and I get this after talking to a lot of other people at Disney and a lot of people that work on this side of things, but not everybody wants to. You know, a lot of band guys want to do band guy stuff. They don't have any interest in doing a show or whatever. So I kind of didn't realize that that was one of the things. So they sat me down, they took me to lunch and they were like, hey, so we have this idea and we'd love for you to pitch for it. We'd love for you to try writing a song for this thing. And they held off on what it was until the very end, right? So they're kind of setting me up and like, yeah, you know, it's this, it's going to be a show. It's going to be geared towards kids. And, and they were kind of like buttering me up like I was going to be like, oh, I don't know, you know. And then they tell me what it is. And I'm like, of course I'm going to do a Spidey. Yeah. Like what? Like, is there any universe where I say no to that? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, of course. So um, I was going to have a meeting with them, like a second meeting. 
And the morning of the meeting, they sent me a one sheet kind of describing the show and showing me kind of pictures of what they would look like. And instantly I wrote the song like right away. Like I, I was looking at it. I'm like, oh man. And I had the song so fast. I had the song probably in literally under a minute, like all of the main important stuff. It just like jumped out at me because in your head is swirling around, you know, all of the history of Spidey on film and on TV. And, you know, you think about the 60s cartoon and the kind of surf rock. You think about the 80s Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And that has that kind of weird 80s brass kind of thing. And, and then you have the 90s cartoon. It was kind of almost metal. And then obviously the film iterations with Danny Elfman. And, and then, of course, Michael Giacchino's score. So all of that stuff instantly is just going around my head. And I'm thinking about, you know, if you're a four-year-old kid who's never seen Spider-Man before, or never seen any version of Spidey, what's your introduction? It just kind of like, and so before I even went to the meeting, I didn't have time to do this, but I, I ran over to my studio and recorded it and brought it to the meeting. And I was just that excited and it worked and they went for it. And ultimately I ended up getting the score of the show too, which is amazing. Again, kind of with all of those ideas swirling around in my head, thinking of all of the history of, of the character, but that for little kids as like their introduction, you know? Dude, I, I'm so excited for this because I have a, my daughter is 20 months old. So oh, cool. she knows Sesame Street and she knows Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And so They Might Be Giants have uh, yeah. a song for Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, like a great theme song that is aimed for a kid and works really well with the material is so important. And she loves Spider-Man. She calls Spider-Man baby. So like <laughs> she's going to be so into it and so excited. I'm, I'm super jazzed for this. It's going to be a lot of fun. When you were talking about how some folks in bands don't want to do this music, it made me think of Danny Elfman. Mm -hmm. And I was just listening to Danny on another podcast. He was on Turn Out of Punk recently, and he was like talking about going from, you know, Oingo Boingo and, and, and band stuff and then going into doing all score stuff and working on television and movies. And it's like you could do both. You could still make all the music you want here and there it feels like yeah well and not to mention that for me personally it would be dishonest not to be interested in film and tv stuff and specifically elfman i don't say this because of the topic but i literally wouldn't be i probably wouldn't be any kind of musician if it weren't for, for danny elfman i mean i i again i'm not sure i'm supposed to mention this uh this character from the other but you know it was important for superhero films because there were there weren't a lot when we were kids we didn't have that many superhero films and batman was this watershed because you could make a superhero film and take it seriously it wasn't like a joke anymore and elfman did this score that between that and the prince soundtrack that was everything for me in music i i hear all of those things and everything i do and I dove into his film score stuff right away. I mean, I was like a little kid obsessed over Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas and Pee Wee and all these things. You know, his, his scores were like huge for me. And I spent a considerable amount of time on especially those early Fall Out Boy records trying to sound like Danny Elfman, <laughs> you know. Um, and then as a composer, I mean, that was always the dream was to get to do film scores and, and uh, you know, write music for TV and ultimately superheroes. I mean, that's the dream, man, you know, is, and it's funny because I mentioned Batman and that score is one of my favorite scores, but I was always a Marvel guy. So that was always my preference. So now that there are so many Marvel movies, I mean, it's an incredible time. It's almost like people talk sometimes about living in the worst time. I'm like, yeah, there's some pretty bad stuff, but 
it's a small consolation, but I'm pretty happy about the Marvel movies. You know, like, <laughs> like, and those scores too. I mean, Alan Silvestri on the Captain America score. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's so, I mean, to me, it's so iconic. Or Lubick Gorenson on uh, Black Panther. I mean, I can't read Black Panther anymore without hearing the talking drum now, you know? Like Ant-Man is like a sleeper because you kind of think of that one as a funny one, but that's a really perfect theme for that one. Yeah. Um, Captain Marvel was so good. Pinar Toprak. And then Avengers. I mean, forget it. That's like the one. But like, it's an incredibly inspiring time to be a Marvel fan, to be a movie fan, to be a fan of film scores for me. Anyway, I mean, I this is like the coolest stuff for me to watch, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm a big King Kong guy. And then the King of the Monsters score mm-hmm. was freaking terrific. And like, yeah. Yeah. It's we're in a good place where right? we, we get some good yeah. music. It's rad. Exactly. Um, speaking of, of, of fans, though, like you have kids, right? You have young, some yeah. kind of young kids. Are they Marvel fans? Were they any part of your getting involved in this show, whether from you're wanting to do it or like as you're like testing out the music, do they hear it? I would have done it regardless of whether or not I had kids because I'm for me, it's like how many times in your life are you going to get the opportunity to write music for superheroes? I mean, for Spider-Man and well, I mean, he's not really Spider-Man, he's Spidey, but for you know, that universe, you know, I get to write music for Green Goblin and I get to write music for Black Panther. I mean, that's, that's the coolest job ever. So, so I would have done it anyway, but having kids was actually a lot of pressure because they heard the song, they heard the theme song before I got the job. And then, you know, there's that period where I'm not sure if I have the job, you know, I'm kind of waiting to see, and they would walk around the house singing the song. And I'm like, gosh, I hope I get it. <laughs> like, if I don't get it, this is going to be such a bummer. And they're going to watch the show and be like, oh, dad, yeah, why didn't they like your song? You know, so. Oh, man. So you, you mentioned Green Goblin, Black Panther. Can you elaborate a little bit on what being the composer and the songwriter for the series, even past the theme song, entails? Like, what kind of stuff will we hear for different characters? There was a learning curve because, yeah, I do come from this, in terms of film score, I think in terms of big, loud you know, Elfman-esque kind of stuff. That's really where my my heart is. So I came in with just all of this big orchestral stuff and they're like, yeah, but like, it's like Disney Junior Spidey. So like, try and find a way to make that like a little bit less threatening, you know? And so it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of pop instruments, you know, there's a lot of drums, bass and guitar kind of stuff. But yeah, there's basically... You know, I got to write a bunch of themes for a bunch of these characters that I grew up with. And it's it's like the coolest thing ever. And like I said, you know, you kind of take into account all the different iterations of things. So like, for example, like Black Panther, I wrote a new piece. But like I said, that talking drum, just using the talking drum at this point to me, it's like I can't read Black Panther without hearing it. And I can't hear it without seeing Black Panther, you know, so so I was like, that has to be in there, you know, or um, Green Goblin is probably the most overtly Elfman-esque. I just felt like he wanted that, like the character wanted that. And then I get to do, there's some of the friends I got to write for Hulk, which was really neat because Hulk's different in the show than he is in a lot of other iterations where he doesn't really have a lot of the pathos. In fact, he tries really hard not to get angry. That's an ongoing theme. So I wanted something that felt big and heavy, but not quite as angry and dark. I mean, inherently Hulk has a lot of darkness in him. And this version of Hulk is a lot He's, he's more of a teddy bear, you know? So I got to write, I gave it a swing. I made it a, a swing song instead of like, a, you know, something too aggressive. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously the trio of Peter and Gwen and Miles. And um, I got to give each of them something, which was really exciting to kind of play with that and to kind of like, 
Gwen plays drums and they actually make a big deal of that in the show, which I love that like, it's not like a thing in passing, like she will play drums a lot. You will see her play drums. So that was a thing. It's like, you know, I've got to make sure that that's there. And um, basically just kind of trying to read into every character. And it's like, it's the coolest thing to get to look at these characters and watch them on screen and think of like, you know, what do they sound like in this context? It's awesome. Yeah. Thinking about sort of what you, you were saying before is, you know, the early Fallout Boy stuff, you were trying to do Danny Elfman in some ways. As you've done more work for movies and television and stuff like that, has that affected the work that you're doing outside of film and TV score work? And then vice versa, like, does it affect the other parts of like your songwriting brain? Yeah, it's weird because um, it's like I have an outlet for it. So it's not, I'm finding that I'm able to enjoy a kind of songwriting that I never enjoyed before, which is a little bit simpler because in my head, you know, I was desperate to get to an orchestra. I was desperate to get to all the layers of film scoring because film scoring, you know, there's just so much to it. And you have light motifs that are reappearing and you have all this instrumentation and everything's doubled and, you know, tripled and everything. You have all of this music that you have to think of and all these layers. And I actually find in, in songwriting now, as a result, I've never been able to do this, but I'm kind of appreciating now more simplistic songwriting because it's kind of the antithesis of what you do in film scoring for the most part. I mean, there's still moments in film score where, you know, you might have a minute and a half of just a pedaling violin or something. But a lot of the time, there's a lot of music, even when it feels like there's only one thing, there's a lot. And pop music and rock music is a place where you sometimes really do just get like a guitar or, you know, guitar and drums and a voice or something. There are moments like that. And I appreciate those more than I used to because of scoring. When you were putting this show together and the, the score and the different pieces, you mentioned some of the characters. Do you have to sort of think about feelings, especially because it's a kid's show, right? And like, mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're working around a lot of the character stuff, but I just think about the, the audience it has such yeah. an effect on what you have to think about your evoking, right? Yeah. Well, the thing that I kept trying to think of was like, you know, I was a weird kid, but I was like, try and write for you as a kid. Because I feel like that was one thing that shocked me working on this show right away is that they take the music pretty seriously. Like, that's not to say that other projects haven't, but in terms of like kid shows, I've seen some other ones that, that, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, just have fun with it, whatever. This one, they want you to have fun, but they want you to take it seriously and they really want you to care about it. And I was so excited about that because uh, they treat, the audience with respect in a way that that I didn't expect for a kid's show. I mean, a lot of people just think, oh, it's kids stuff, whatever, going, you know, and uh, this they didn't want to scare kids. That was really the big thing. But it doesn't really talk down to kids musically. So so musically, it's supposed to feel like it feels. And so I get to do a lot emotionally with it that I'm surprised at how not Looney Tunes it was or something. You know, it's not like silly cartoony ever it's really about the characters emotions and stuff and i thought that was so cool that that was what they wanted because then again i get to take it seriously as serious as i want to because i like i said I, i'm a big marvel fan I'm a big spidey fan but yeah thinking about me as a little kid you know what would i want basically what would i want it to sound like yeah i want to shift over a little bit to fallout boy because is it this year the 20th anniversary of when you guys formed was it 2001 yeah. 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 Hey, yeah. Which is pretty go. wild, right? I like thinking about that. 
Did you grow up in, in like the Chicago punk scene, the hardcore scene? Yeah. I'm from Long Island in New York. And so mm-hmm. I was like the Long Island hardcore scene of the yeah. late 90s was my jam, like Silent Majority and, and, and yeah. Indecision and bands like that. Like I remember Crudos came to a fest in Jersey and I only got to see Los Crudos twice, but like them, like MK Ultra, there were some great Chicago yeah. hardcore bands, man. Yeah. Crudos was so good. Oh. Crudos was like legendary. It was weird. It was a it was a really weird scene. And I think Chicago, I mean, I, I'm sure this was like this in a lot of other places, but I just knew it as a Chicago kid. It was really funny because you would have Crudos, but then like there would be crossover with members from, you know, MK Ultra and, and this band, the Kylers and, and like whatever. And there'd be all these like different bands and everyone was sharing members because there were only like 10 drummers in town that were that good, you know? And so, you know, like that kind of thing. So Andy was one of those drummers. It was funny. He was in Milwaukee. He wasn't in Chicago, but he was playing in half of the Chicago bands because, you know, he was just that good. So he would drive down. But yeah, it was uh, it was a cool era. You know, those basement shows and the shows at the Odom and shows at the Arlington Heights Nights at Columbus and all that, you know, all these, you know, hardcore fests and stuff. And then for some reason there was Fall Out Boy, you know, like we were it was kind of this funny thing where we had been in hardcore we'd all been in hardcore bands and that was the thing that we took more seriously you know pete was on tour with a bunch of bands on trust kills so like he had a real band you know as far as we were concerned this was just a side project we just thought of it as like this fun thing and then before we knew it people started coming to see our side project and we were like oh crazy you know like weird you know and and so i remember playing with uh killing tree which was uh tim from rise against was one of his kind of side projects and I remember thinking like, yeah, these are the side project bands or whatever, but then, you know, we're still living it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. I think there's just the the crossover appeal for a band like Fallout Boy or, you know, I think locally like Brand New and Taking Back mm-hmm. Sunday, like different bands who come from, you know, like, yeah, you're in these hardcore bands, but then you're also in these bands that can play great pop tinge stuff and, and there's melodic and it's... Yeah, which was a happy accident because I didn't know I was a singer. I was just a drummer and I was a drummer and I always wanted to write music. I wanted to write music for, you know, like, like I said, I wanted to write music for movies and stuff, but I wanted to write songs. And at the time, no one was taking the drummer that seriously for that kind of stuff. And I was kind of like B tier as a drummer. I was pretty good, but I wasn't quite as good as, you know, I was going to lose a job to Andy. You know, if I was auditioning, there's this guy, Damar, who uh, played in Plain White Tees and he would just get everything because he was like the best drummer like he was incredible and so i couldn't i was good but i was like their second choice for you know for for all those bands and so i knew that if i was going to write songs i was going to have to do something different and um i ended up having to sing which i didn't really plan on and i didn't think i had any aptitude for but then you know here i am i guess <laughs> i've talked to andy a couple times a while ago i used to work at wizard magazine and, and oh, cool. i think i met him at like a chicago con once or mm-hmm. something like that but andy was rad he's a big comic book fan too if i remember correctly yes. yeah did you guys ever talk marvel like there's such a part of what who we are i think as like fans it just becomes part of your dna you ever have those conversations with andy about so yes but andy it's funny because Andy's on a completely different wavelength with comics. Because for me, I'm a pretty huge comic fan, but I kind of have eras and I have ideas in my head, like these specific ideas of what a character is, you know? So like I said, it's cool that they gave Wolverine a real name, but I like him just being Logan and not knowing who he is and, you know, bumming around Japan. You know, I, I like that version of him. I like kind of parking things and or like um, like Fantastic Four has gone in so many amazing places. But I mean, that first 
few years of them just being this weird sci-fi book that, you know, I love that. I love that era. I love the Jack Kirby era of stuff. I love a lot like those early um, Doctor Strange comics are so weird and so perfect and, and that kind of stuff. I dabble in a lot of the newer stuff, but I really always just go back to, I find myself going back to, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s of a lot of these heroes. Whereas Andy is just exhaustive. He's read everything by everybody. And I mean, everything. He's read every Marvel thing. He's read every indie thing. He's read everybody. So it's really funny because now every time some new show, some streaming service puts out some new show based on a comic book, I'm like, oh, I remember when Andy was talking about this comic 10 years ago. Yes. Okay. That's kind of his world is he's, you know, I mean, he's like a real comic nerd. I'm like a a mail order. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think you showed your bona fides in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, like most people don't start their conversation by referencing John Byrne, She-Hulk. Like that's, that's it was a little so bit cool. And I mean, no, it was it's so great. And I love that they really didn't go light on her being a lawyer. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where they spend like issues on her being a lawyer. And I was like, it was such a strange comic. And like you said, when you're starting and you're like, this is what comics are. This is crazy. You know, when I, I talk to folks from bands, sometimes I think about the musicians in the Marvel universe, particularly Lila Cheney. And Lila Cheney is like, she's got this cool transporting superpower and, and kind of a thief. And the New Mutants got obsessed with her for a while and Cannonball. So if you, if Fallout Boy were in the Marvel universe, who do you think would be the biggest like superhero fan of theirs? Huh. That's a weird one. I feel like <laughs> Because I, I don't know who would be a fan of ours. I feel like I'm always surprised by who resonates with your music because it's never people you expect, you know? So for some reason, I'd be like, I don't know, like, um, what was that guy? I think his real name was Guido, but he had, the, I think his strong name guy, was Guido Caracella. Strong guy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was just strong guy. I feel like it'd be someone like that where he's like, hey, Bob boy. I'd be like, dude, awesome. I had no idea. You 100%. Know? Like, that's a great answer, though. That That's super fun. Yeah, Guido would, would have a good time. That'd be that's right. Yeah, and he seemed like a fun guy. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So any plans for a tour? Anything up? What 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 else is coming up for you in this year that we can share to the Marvel so fans? So the rest of this year I'm scoring. I just did a film called Mark and Mary and Some Other People, and I did a film called Black Friday. Yeah, and I'm just working on Spidey. I mean, it's uh it's funny because I, you know, Fall Out Boy is the thing that people know me for, but I do I probably spend all day every day as a composer and and it's awesome. I just get to be in here in my room goofing around with instruments and, and hopefully people like it, whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm sure they will. I'm excited. As I said, I'm 90% sure my kid is going to fall in love with the show. And uh... it's a fun show. Like I said, I mean, it's the coolest thing to get to do. And um, and especially, yeah, for little kid shows and, you know, having kids some of the kids shows aren't that fun. Some of the kids shows are a bummer and they latch onto it and you're like, all right, you know, okay, we'll watch this one again. And so I'm excited to have to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right on, man. Patrick, thanks so much for doing the show. Cheers. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me. Ryan. All right. Thank you to Patrick for being on the show with us this week. Spidey and his amazing friends premieres Friday, August 6th on the Disney Channel and Disney Junior. So definitely check that out. That was awesome. But hey, surprise, we have that bonus interview as promised from Marvel Studios Black Widow. We have Olga Kurlenko, who plays a very special character. If you haven't seen the film, this is a big spoiler. So <laughs> you've been warned. 
If you have seen the film, please go enjoy this interview. If not, your homework is to go watch Marvel Studios Black Widow and report back. Hello to the incredible Olga. Thank you so much for speaking with us here at This Week in Marvel. What is your Marvel origin story? I know you weren't born in the States, but what was the first time you encountered the characters in the Marvel Universe? Oh, gosh, when I've, um, I don't remember, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, during my childhood. I definitely didn't watch that because I didn't have that available. Uh, so I probably, I don't remember when I first saw it. Probably I was living in Paris because I lived in Paris for 13 years. So I must have seen the first ones in France. And yeah, obviously fan of it, like lots of people and um, fan of superheroes, of their abilities. The fact that it's, they're just so cool. They can do extraordinary things. It's always very empowering to, to be able to do extraordinary things. I'm part of it. It's uh, exciting. Now, I know that there's a ton of secrecy. I mean, it's like its own sort of spy network in and of itself. When you got offered your role for the film, did you know what the role was? How much were you sort of let in on the secret about the film? I knew what the role was, of course, and um, it was awesome to get the, that offer. And, uh, you know, what I knew is what was in the script, but there is much more to it that you always have to come up with and discuss. And I discussed these things with Kate, the director. Mm -hmm. For us, we wanted to concentrate on the personality of the character, who is behind that mask and that costume, her soul that she still has, in spite of the fact that she's a, a cold-blooded killing machine when she's uh, manipulated. When she's stripped off that or the spell goes away, she is a human being who is in lots of suffering. Yeah, it can be explored in, in many ways. Further, there's a lot to, to her and what she's gone through. That must be such an exciting opportunity as an actor because she is sort of under this mind control. You, I would assume, have a lot of room to sort of play with what her inner life is and her history is. What was it like working with Kate and the other actors to sort of fill out that backstory and, and really make it your own role? It's a great process. It's always a, a fascinating creative process to come up with things that might not even be there and to add more of, of you, of your ideas, of your understanding of the character. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great that I loved uh, working with Scarlett, of course, and, and Kate. They were the people I worked the most with. Kate has this feminine sensibility to her, which like I think it comes through the film. Obviously, it's very... Uh, female-driven film altogether. As a woman, for me, it's empowering. It was nice because Kate was always reacting to the scenes that she was watching on the monitor right during the takes. She would really live through them. I remember like being surprised how sensitive she is. She would like either be laughing or in tears <laughs> or like, you know, and be like, oh my God, that was beautiful. And she would have tears in her eyes. And it's just so lovely and, and sweet and nice. And it's just you know, it gets people together, like the vulnerability and the, the ability to feel is just so beautiful to see in humans. And it was part of that. We could see glimpses of that on set. And uh, I definitely think it comes through in the images and in, in the story and the way it's, it's made. I definitely can say as somebody who's been in the audience for the film, I think that, you know, it's very lovely that you got to have an experience with Kate as your audience and your director sort of at the same time, because it's really thrilling to have that experience, you know, as an audience member. Now, there's so much physical process to this role as well. Obviously, 
a lot of stunts and things, but also makeup. What was the sort of day-to-day process of doing the makeup regime as you were preparing? And what was that like for you as an actor? Do you like to hype yourself up or do you like to tune out while you do your makeup or have your makeup Oh, no. That makeup was so long. You know, it's better to tune out because otherwise you get very antsy. I think I was in that chair for about two hours, you know, just for the makeup I'm talking about Mm -hmm. and makeup and hair. And it's definitely, uh, I guess one could even fall asleep while they were doing that because it was so long. But yeah, it's extraordinary what transformation I had to go through in the morning. You definitely, when you look back at yourself in the mirror, it throws you straight into the character. It helps, you know, to portray mm-hmm. characters like that with such strong appearance, but also obviously um, all the internal. Her appearance reflects her internal suffering. I mean, she's gone through as much of a physical trauma as she's gone through psychological, mental trauma. And uh, yeah, her face is just... Uh, the metaphor or the reflection of what might be going inside her. It's just as scarred. Her soul is scarred. She has so many layers and so much depth because I think so many of us see Antonio Drakov as as what she could have been, this child, this little girl who had her childhood taken from her, but also like has turned into, for better or worse, an absolute badass soldier mimic What was it like for you getting into the training process and how much were you in that Taskmaster costume when stunt time came around? Because I know it takes a village to put together those kinds of epic, epic stunts. It's, yeah, it definitely took lots of people that were involved. And this is incredible about Taskmaster that, you know, usually I've worked in uh, action films before and I have uh, a stunt double, one stunt double. Well, Taskmaster had several stunt doubles because... Basically, the character is so complex. She's so skillful at what she does. She basically can mimic anyone. That means there is no limit to her capabilities. It's whoever is in front of her, she will mimic. And so, yeah, many different people had to be involved in stunts because I guess you just can't even have one person who could do all of it in one. Like people are specialized in specific things. You know, some are Western martial arts masters. Some are, you know champions and doing flips you know the gymnasts or something there's so many different skills to that and it's incredible how i was surrounded by a group of people not just you know uh, there's lots of us out there (laughs) it makes a lot of sense when you have a character who can do literally everything that not everybody does everything which is why they're like a superhero right or a super villain as it might be you know it's just so fun to see those taskmaster scenes and like all of the mystery and intrigue that has been around it. What is it like for you to finally be able to sort of talk about it? What was the secrecy like on set when you were in costume? I know that that's always kind of a challenge, you know, to keep that ending secret. Yeah, on set, it was uh, a challenge as well. Yeah, because I couldn't just walk around the set or studios, you know, freely, which can be a little frustrating sometimes. Um, it's like, well, I just want to go for a walk. No, you can't. <laughs> no. And so um, I was, yeah, I was hidden. I was hiding. So I had this umbrella that I was holding that had uh, fabric hanging from it all the way down to the floor to hide me. And uh, I was walking and just looking through a hole in the fabric to see where I was going. And that was my way of uh, moving from point A to point B. Um, I couldn't just walk. Without that thing, I couldn't walk. So I always had to take that umbrella and 
walk underneath it. I wonder what people thought. What is that? She's <laughs> what, very shy of the sun. What is the object moving around? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, so yeah, definitely the secret started from the very beginning. And then, of course, when Mon's movie was done, there was just no way I could talk about it. So that was not a question. And yeah, my mom only found out two days ago. And yeah, no one knew. But it's exciting to have it finally out and be able to talk about it and you know to discuss and I don't have to hide it anymore yes <laughs> um, yes it's fun it's fun it's the best well thank you so much for talking with us everyone of course if you haven't already go experience Marvel Studios Black Widow in theaters and on Disney plus with premiere access for an additional fee thank you so much thank you Thank you to Olga for being on the show with us this week. It is time to roll along thinking about what's coming up next week. Because next week, we have Timothy Busfield, star of Marvel's Wastelanders, old man Star-Lord, talking about the series. It's going to be wonderful now that the season has wrapped up. So with that in mind, our question of the week for next week is, what is your favorite Marvel dystopia? There are tons of alternate futures and, and just terrible awful ways for the Marvel Universe to go. What do you think, Lorraine? Shout out to Future Imperfect with mm -hmm. sassy bald Hulk. <laughs> I don't know. There's so there's so many to choose from. I mean, Future Imperfect is honestly so iconic. I feel like how could you not? But the end, all of the ends. Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past. That's such a good one. I'm wondering if Age of Apocalypse counts because it's not the future, but it is a terrible reality. I that, that feels dystopian. Yes. Yes. It is hard to even say favorite because they're all just so upsetting. Everything most is upsetting <laughs> Marvel future dystopia. Yeah, maybe maybe that's even better. What's your your most upsetting Marvel dystopia? For me, then it's definitely Days of Future Past. Just seeing, oh, you know, well, yeah, oh, Storm and Wolverine and all my favorites get killed and oh, the graves, the sight of the graves, oh, it hurts oh. me to this day. And now that we've caused you that pain, you can tweet us your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com, or you could send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Please make sure to tell us if it's quote unquote okay to read on the show so we can, you guessed it, read it on the show. I like this question too, because I think it'll probably give ideas for people who've not read certain stories, a chance to check them yeah. out, which would be pretty, pretty cool. All right, let's dive into the community section for this week, because our question of the week last week was, what would you be most excited to show a child to introduce them to Marvel? Yeah, on the other side of the coin. <laughs> yeah, we got an email from Dylan Dussault, who says, so for me, I'm excited to show Spidey and his amazing friends to my little brother, because he absolutely loves Spider-Man, and I think he will like this a lot. It will give us a show to watch weekly or however it comes out. He does not even know it's a thing, so it will be a nice surprise. Oh, the best kind of surprise. Next up, we have Scott Fry at Scott Fry 78 who said, Spider-Man and his amazing friends because it's what started my love for Marvel when I was four or five. Oh, they're great. We have a tweet in here from Snakey18 at Snakey181, which says, I would absolutely introduce them to the harmless classic Spider-Man and Hellcat versus Thanos. Iconic. Next up, we have Fantasy Comic League at Fantasy Comic LG, who says, started with some shows and movies with some success, but this weekend I finally pulled out some games and puzzles, which were a big hit. Love capturing and identifying all the villains in the five-minute Marvel game. Aww. 
Terrific. We got another tweet in here which says, First, I'll show the child Baby Groot and Rocket from Marvel Studios' Guardians of the Galaxy. Then, when the child is old enough to understand every aspect of the movies, I'll show him all the movies and the series, because Marvel is something else. You are bound to love it. So I actually showed a cutdown of Baby Groot from Marvel Studios' Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 to Catherine Grace. And so every time we go through her Marvel Studios alphabet book and we get to Baby Groot, she says, Baby Groot on TV, Baby Groot on TV. And it gets annoyed when I won't show her more on the television because I'm trying to limit her screen time. But hey, she remembers. All right. Next up, we have Keith at Cap Keith Rogers, who said, I would show Marvel Studios Captain America, the first Avenger to introduce them to Marvel because the film shows being a good person is what defines a hero, not super strength or pure power. And Steve Rogers fights bullies even when he's skinny. He does it all day. Hopefully it's not too scary. Maybe fast forward past some of the Red Skull. I don't know. <laughs> Catherine also sees Red Skull in the book, and she goes, bad, bad. And I'm like, yeah, you know it, kiddo. All right, Riot, at Quirky Riot, says, I would choose Marvel Studios Loki or Marvel Studios WandaVision. I don't know which one because they're both great stories. I like your diving headfirst into deep, complex, emotional stories to show to a kid. Do it. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? Amanda at Off Francis says, after Angelique's interview with Terry Blass on Marvel's Voices, I am convinced that every kid needs to read this run of Reptile. Other than that, my go-to is always the Unstoppable Wasp. I love the energy and friend group dynamics. Shout out to both the wonderful comics as well as the prose novel. They're a great read as well. Heck yeah. Victoria Audrey Winters at the underscore VA Winters says, I'd be most excited to show a child the first Marvel Studios Avengers movie. I feel like Marvel has taught me so much as a person. They show us that not every hero is perfect and that they are normal humans just like us. Indeed. Okay, next up, we have a message on our Facebook page from Heather Gee, who says, Watching my kids grow up loving the characters I loved as a kid has been amazing. My greatest moment was living out a childhood dream meeting Captain America at the other park in Orlando. Everyone wore matching cap shirts and we got a picture with him. Best moment ever. Heck yeah. We got an answer from Bradley over on Facebook as well. Bradley says, it always put a smile on my face whenever I get to share my love for comic books with someone and especially if they learned something new. A few years ago, my cousin, who was eight or nine at the time, watched Marvel Studios' Captain America Civil War, his first Marvel movie, and he came asking me more about the Marvel Universe and about Iron Man and Spider-Man. And since then, I would always get a Spider-Man or Captain America trade for him from the Spider-Man Worldwide book to the 2006 Civil War. But I'm slowly expanding his library, and it's safe to say that he's enjoying every second of it. Thank you for the podcast. Love every episode. Huge fan of both Lorraine and Ryan and everyone who works on the podcast series and all the Marvel content. Thanks, Bradley. So lovely. All right, Lorraine, we have one more from our pal Dustin Radcliffe on Facebook. And it's a long message. Do you mind if I read this one? Oh, please do. All right. It begins talking about the Loki finale. I still I'm, I'm going to tread lightly around the, the spoiler territory there, Dustin. But he, he, he talked about the ending a little bit. And he says, as someone with a background in community theater, I really appreciate the dialogue heavy scenes. Jonathan Majors came in with absolute command and broke down the multiverse with such poise and confidence and a little wittiness. Bravo. Hearing all of the stories from behind the scenes was really fascinating. I only know behind the scenes of community theater, performing in musicals and plays, but the process of seeing concept to fruition so many times, I have developed a high passion of what goes on behind the curtain. I have massive respect for that. 
To be a fly on the wall at Marvel Studios would be an absolute wonder. I am personally excited for what's to come going forward and beyond Phase 4. And now, being a dad, I get a luxury of showing my kids the likes of all the Marvel superheroes through every sort of variant way to enjoy it all. My son absolutely loves watching the Marvel movies. He's beginning to enjoy more of the cartoons and has even started reading the comics. We absolutely love Spidey in our household. In fact, as I write this, we are watching the Spider-Man movies of old, starting with Tobey Maguire. The Sam Raimi films re-sparked my fandom, so it holds a special place and memory for me, and now I get to share them with my son. His favorite is Miles Morales, though. We went to see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in theaters, and we had an absolute blast. It was then he had found his Spider-Man, one he resonated with. We continued to see all of the Marvel movies as a family. Marvel Studios' Doctor Strange, Marvel Studios' Black Panther, Marvel Studios' Avengers' Infinity War, Marvel Studios' Avengers' Endgame, etc. And now, the shows. We enjoyed WandaVision, and to see my son witness Sam Wilson become Captain America in Marvel Studios' The Falcon and the Winter Soldier warmed my heart as a dad. My son also loves Loki now. A new favorite. It's amazing. My daughter isn't quite there. She loves the Marvel Studios logo that flashes on the screen before every movie and show, and that's about it. She has enjoyed bits of Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel and various other films and shows, but not quite there yet. Baby steps, right? I'm excited to share this new Spider-Man cartoon series with my children and perhaps spark a new interest for my daughter. Perhaps get a break from those Muppet Babies. I'm going to interject here. That Muppet Babies show is cute. I wish they also had the original Muppet Babies show on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. but I digress. As always, I wish you well on your continued success. Lorraine and Ryan, you have my absolute favorite source for Marvel content. Hands down, just love your show. And he says, P.S. My wife, Megan, wanted to say a big hello to Patrick Stump of Fall Out Boy as she is such a huge fan. She loves their music and has for a while, so we thought it was cool one of her favorite bands was doing the theme for a Spidey cartoon. Dustin, thanks so much for the big, long, wonderful message. I love the ways that you are introducing your kids to Marvel. And look, if your daughter doesn't love Marvel, it's okay. Everybody's got to have their own thing. Not everything is for everyone. Support them in whatever they enjoy. Also, we'll give it some time. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Things change. All right. That wraps it up for us. This episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Pizza Time. Ain't no time like Pizza Time. It's always time for Pizza Time. Pizza Time. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel your universe.